Section Zero of the Beginning of the Middle Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami, M.D. The Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. Introduction. Modern history is separated from ancient by two great and unparalleled catastrophes, and from the changes occasioned by these catastrophes in the materials and conditions of society in Europe, modern history took its beginnings. One was the destruction of the Jewish state and temple. The other was the breakup of the Roman Empire. These two catastrophes, though divided by a considerable interval of time and altogether different in their operation, were in various ways closely combined in their effects on the state of the world. They were catastrophes of the same order, the overthrow and passing away of the old, in things most deeply concerning human life, that the new might come. Without them, that new settlement or direction of human affairs under which the last fifteen centuries have been passed would have been inconceivable and impossible. The fall of Jerusalem was the evident close of a theocracy, which up to that time had for ages counted on a divine guarantee, and which looked forward without doubt to ending only in the consummation of a messianic triumph. It was the apparent extinction of the visible kingdom of God on earth, the doom pronounced by the course of events on claims and hopes which to those who lived under them seemed the most sure of all things. The fall of the Roman Empire was the overthrow of the greatest, the strongest, and the most firmly settled state which the world had ever known. The dislocation and reversal of the long-received ideas and assumptions of mankind, of their habits of thinking, of the customs of life, of the conclusions of experience. The one cleared the ground for the Christian religion and the Christian church, to which ancient Judaism, if it had still subsisted, unhumbled and active, with its wonderful history and uncompromising pretensions, would have been a most formidable rival. The other made room and prepared materials not only for new nations, but for new forms of political and social order, then beyond all possibility of being anticipated or understood. For the new objects and ambitions, the new powers and achievements which have distinguished modern times at their worst, as well as at their best, from those of all ancient civilizations. The world in the West, as known to us in history, was surrounded by a vague and unexplored waste of barbarism. During the first three centuries of the empire, all in the South seemed settled, all in the North was unstable and in movement. In the eyes of civilized mankind, there were in the world two great empires of very unequal force. The Eternal Empire of Rome, secure as nature itself, and the Asiatic Empire of the East, at one time held by a Parthian, then by Persian dynasties, often troublesome, but never a real rival to Rome, for the allegiance of nations around the focus of civilization, the Mediterranean Sea. India was still wrapped in mystery and fable. Outside of the Roman and Persian borders northwards and northeastwards, 
there was a vast dimly known chaos of numberless barbarous tongues and savage races from which from time to time strange rumours reached the great italian capital of the world and unwelcome visitors showed themselves in the distant provinces on the rhine and the danube and contemporaneously with the beginning of the empire had begun a shaking of the nations scarcely perceptible at first but visibly growing in importance as time went on but there in what seemed to the majestic order of rome a mere seething tumult of confused and unimportant broils was maturing the fate of the empire and the beginnings of a new world it was the scene of that great movement and displacement of the masses of uncivilized mankind to which the germans have given the name of the wandering of the nations Völkerwanderung. long before it can be traced in history this perpetual shifting of races accompanied by the extermination of the weaker and longest settled by the stronger newcomers had been the rule of the northern world the causes which produced it became soon after the beginning of our era unusually active and it went on for centuries till the great social and political changes which it produced in the west brought it to a final condition of stable repose an impulse apparently had been given from the heart of asia which added force to the natural struggle among the barbarian tribes for better and more convenient abodes when the movement came to its height it began to be sensibly felt on the frontiers of the empire about the middle of the second century it called for serious efforts on the danube toward the end of the third it overleaped the barrier of the rhine by that time fresh internal changes had taken place in the teutonic tribes themselves first known to the romans their early names became merged and lost in new ones smaller bodies are fused together into larger ones tribes first heard of on the shores of the northern sea and the baltic goths vandals heriules burgundians lombards next appear after an interval of obscurity on the euxine the danube the rhine instead of the chauci the keruski of the campaigns of drusus and tiberius or the marcomanni of marcus aurelius there appear great confederacies sometimes with old names like the suevi sometimes with new as the alemanni of the upper and the franks of the lower rhine in 250 the goths who in their migrations had come in contact with the huns and had fled before them were becoming dangerous on the danube a roman emperor decius was defeated and slain by them during the whole of the third century the confederacy then known as that of the alemanni was putting to the severest strain the efforts of emperors like maximin claudius aurelian and probus to keep them from the upper rhine and they ended by establishing themselves there in spite of the victories in the following century of julian and gratian in the year 240 the germans of the lower rhine no more known as the chatti camavi bructeri and only in rhetoric as zegambrians appear for the first time as the franks more furious more enterprising and more terrible in their ravages in gaul than even the alemanni and the burgundians once settled between the oder and the vistula then in their migrations driven westward before the goths pushed themselves in between the alemanni and the franks 
By the fourth century, the presence of the barbarians had become recognized in its real proportions as a new and alarming feature in the condition of the world. Constantine, Julian, Valentinian, Theodosius could defeat them and attempt to terrify them by bloody punishments, as Constantine exposed two Frank kings to the wild beasts in the amphitheater at Treves. But the Roman victories were in vain. The advance of the barbarians was as certain and powerful as the rising of the tide. The Roman state, which was thus assailed without, was slowly undermined from within. The gloomy pages of Tacitus present the picture of a mighty empire, established apparently on foundations which could not be moved, yet wrung and tortured by evils for which it seemed hopeless to look for end or remedy. The recovery and health of this great but deeply diseased body seemed inconceivable, yet its subversion and disappearance seemed equally so amid the then forces of the world. But as time went on, its fashions of corruption and vice increased in variety and enormity. A general degradation of character and a lowering of level in thought, in strength of action, and in customary morality set in, political decay, ill success, and disaster grew greater and more familiar in men's minds. And the remarkable thing is that neither exceptional virtue nor exceptional wisdom from time to time in its chiefs could overtake the increasing degeneracy and danger. There were no better rulers than the Antonines. There were no abler ones than Trajan and Hadrian. Nothing could be nobler than the integrity and public spirit of soldiers and administrators like Julius Agricola, the type, we cannot doubt, of other great and high-minded Roman governors, the shame and condemnation of the crowd of base and cruel ones. And there is no more majestic monument of human jurisprudence than the system of law which grew up in the Roman law courts. But the springs and principles which govern society had become so fatally tainted that no temporary reaction toward good and no concurrence of beneficent institutions availed to turn back the strong tide of evil tendency. Still, up to the end of the fourth century, nothing gave reason to anticipate the actual overthrow of that last and highest concentration of civilized life conceivable at the time, which the genius of Julius Caesar had imagined and which Augustus had made a reality. It was still looked upon as part of the eternal order of the world. Serious and eventful changes had come about in the course of three centuries, the one visible danger to the empire, the increasing pressure of barbaric tribes on the north and east, was more and more felt. It was becoming certain not only that Roman armies might meet with ill success in barbarian wars, but that barbarians were losing that awe of the empire which had kept them at a distance and were becoming more audacious in their enterprises. There was an undoubted loosening of the bands, the customs, the political and civil instincts, the forces of authority, which had kept the empire together. Among the greatest innovations was the division of power between two or three emperors, and even more serious still, the creation of a new and permanent capital, necessarily the rival of the hitherto unique center of the power and majesty of the empire. But even with two emperors and two or more seats of government, 
the constitution and unity of the empire seemed unimpaired and indestructible, whatever trials it might have to undergo. While the Roman Empire lasted on its old footing, no idea could have seemed more wild to most men than that it should ever cease to exist, or that society could be possible without it, and it was still apparently standing on its ancient foundations at the end of the fourth century. But with the fifth, no one could mistake the signs of change. It began to be evident that what had up to that time seemed the most incredible of all things was about to happen, and was in fact taking place. The empire in one portion of it was giving way. The invaders could no longer be kept from Italy, from Gaul, from Africa, from Rome itself. Where they came, and as long as they chose to stay, they became the masters. They took, they left, they spoiled what they chose. They began to settle permanently in the territories of the western portion of the empire. Finally, its political power, especially in the west, began to pass into barbarian hands. Barbarian chiefs accepted or assumed its offices, chose or rejected, set up, deposed, or slew its shadowy and short-lived emperors, and quarreled with each other for the right to nominate to the name and title of Augustus. Like an army whose line has been cut, the different portions of the empire found their enemy interposed between them, and the West, detached from the East, and enveloped and pressed upon by its foes, offered a field where the struggle went on with the best chances for the invaders. All that had been done to accommodate the defensive resources of the empire to new and increasing dangers had been in vain. Desperate efforts, and efforts of the most varying and opposite kinds, had been made to uphold the state, by Diocletian, by Constantine, by Julian, by Theodosius. Fresh and elaborate organization of the public service, civil and military, adoption of the growing popular religion, return to the old one, careful examination and revision of the law, an elastic policy toward the barbarians which, according to the emergency, sometimes resisted and beat them back, sometimes tempted them off, sometimes took them into service, sometimes accepted and tried to educate or incorporate them as recognized allies of the empire. All these expedients, adopted and carried out by rulers of strong and commanding character, failed to avert what seemed to be the irresistible course of things. All that they succeeded in doing was to attract and divert to the east what was most characteristic of the later empire, and to narrow the area over which its old traditions of government could be maintained. But the original seat and source of Roman greatness was left to its fate, and the phenomenon which the West more and more presented was that of the joint occupation of its lands and many of its cities by Teutonic and Latin, that is, by barbarian and civilized populations. The barbarians were the masters, without as yet taking the trouble or having the knowledge to be rulers. The older civilized inhabitants were neither subjects nor equals, but only in all trials of strength distinctly the weaker. And yet their civilization, maimed and weakened as it was, and naturally suffering loss more and more under such rude and unfavorable conditions, was never finally extinguished 
Even in its decay and waste it presented a contrast, felt by both parties, to the coarseness of barbarian manners and the imperfection of barbarian resources, and excited when the races continued together the interest, the unconscious or suppressed admiration, and at last the emulation of those who had done so much to crush and extirpate it. The fifth century opened with an increased activity and spirit of enterprise among the barbarian tribes which had been pressing on the empire, and had even gained a footing within its bounds. Three great waves of invasion may be distinguished. Foremost and nearest were the Teutonic races. Behind them came the slaves. Behind them again, and pressing strongly on all in front, were the Turanian hordes from the center of Asia, having in their front line the Huns. In 395, the great Theodosius died. His death closed a reign of sixteen years, the last reign of the ancient undivided empire, in which its old honor was maintained in arms and legislation. His death marks the real, though not the nominal, date of the fall of the united empire, and of the extinction from henceforth inevitable of the western division of it. As soon as he had passed away, the change set in with frightful rapidity. He left two young sons, Arcadius and Honorius, under whose names the empire was governed in the east and west, respectively. He left a number of generals and ministers, all of provincial or barbarian origin, to dispute among themselves for the real power of the state. And not only on all the borders of the empire, but within its provinces, there were tribes and leagues of barbarians of many names, often beaten back and terribly chastised, but ever pushing forward again in fresh numbers, and now in some cases under chiefs who had learned war in the Roman service. The name of Alaric the Visigoth rises above those of the crowd of barbarian chiefs who tried their fortune in this moment of the weakness of the empire. The Visigoths, or West Goths, were a Teutonic tribe which had fled for refuge from their implacable enemies, the Huns of the Tartar steppes, into Roman territory. They had received reluctant and doubtful hospitality from the imperial government in the lands south of the Danube, and through vicissitudes of peace and war, friendship and treachery, they had become better acquainted with their Roman neighbors and hosts than any of the barbarian races. First of the Teutonic races, they had in large numbers accepted Christianity. They had learned it from their Roman captives or at the court of Constantinople, and at last from a teacher of their own race, Ulfala, the first founder of Teutonic literature, who, in translating the Bible, gave the barbarians for the first time a written language and invented for them an alphabet. The court religion at the time was Arianism, the doctrine of the Egyptian presbyter Arius, which denied the true Godhead of Jesus Christ. It was an important and formidable departure from the belief of the Christian Church as to the chief object of its faith and worship, the first of many which marked these centuries. From Constantinople, the Goths adopted it. On the death of Theodosius, Alaric conceived the idea of carving out for himself a kingdom and an independent state from the loosely connected provinces of the empire. He invaded first Greece and then Italy. Alaric was a soldier not unworthy of his Roman masters. 
For a time he was confronted and kept in check by another general of equal genius for war, like himself of Teutonic blood, Stilicho the Vandal, the trusted soldier of Theodosius, who had left him guardian of Honorius, the Western Emperor. Stilicho, after putting forth for the last time the vigor of a Roman general on the German frontier, concentrated the forces of the state for the defense of Italy, leaving the distant provinces to themselves. The garrisons were withdrawn from Britain. Goths and Huns were enlisted and disciplined for the service of the empire which their kinsmen were attacking. Against Stilicho's courage, activity, and coolness, Alaric vainly tried to force his way into Italy and to Rome. At Polentia on the Tonaro, southwest of Milan, Stilicho, on Easter Day, 403, gained a bloody though incomplete victory. Alaric saved his broken army by a daring and successful retreat, but only to meet with another overthrow at Verona. At Florence in 405, Stilicho foiled another and fiercer Gothic or Slavonian eruption into Italy under Radagaius. But the Western Empire was not to be saved. Rightly or wrongly, the victorious and perhaps ambitious soldier awakened the jealousy of rivals and the suspicions of his feeble master. Stilicho, Alaric's most formidable antagonist, had for whatever reason more than once allowed his foe to escape, and with the obscure and tortuous policy common to the time, kept open negotiations with him, even at the moment of his own success. He had even proposed to the Roman Senate to buy off Alaric's hostility by honors or payments of money. Stilicho's enemies persuaded Honorius of his general's designs against the state. A mutiny was created against Stilicho in the army, his friends were murdered, and finally Honorius consented to condemn and to put to death, on the charge of treason, the great chief who within five years had won for him the three greatest of recent Roman victories. Then the invaders sprang in on every side. Alaric, hanging on the northeastern frontier among the Julian Alps, had been watching the intrigues of the Italian court, now removed from Rome and Milan, to the protection of the marshes of Ravenna. These intrigues were to deliver him from his great enemy. On the 23rd of August, 408, the head of Stilicho fell under the executioner's sword. In October, Alaric was under the walls of Rome. He came three times in three successive years, and twice he retired. The first time he spared the city for an enormous ransom. The second time he imposed on the city and empire a puppet mock emperor, whom a few months afterwards he degraded as unceremoniously as he had set him up. Alaric's brief stern words were remembered as well as his deeds. To the hermit who bade him in the name of religion retire from the great city, he replied that it was God's will and call that drove him on. To the Romans who threatened him with the numbers of their population, the thicker the hay was his answer, the easier moan. When astounded at his enormous demands, the Romans asked him, what then would he leave them? He answered, your lives. But the third year, 410, the imperial city, the sacred, the inviolate, 
which since the almost mythical visitation of Brennus and his Gauls had only once seen a foreign enemy from her walls and never within them, beheld the amazing, the inconceivable sight, her streets, her palaces broken into and sacked by barbarians, whom of late days she had indeed seen among the mercenaries who served her, but whom of old she knew only as the slaves who fought with one another to make her sport in her gladiatorial shows. The end of the world must have seemed at Rome to have come when the city of Caesar and Augustus, with its gold, its marble, its refinement, was given over to the Gothic spoilers. She might have seen her revenge in the death within a few weeks of the assailant, who had first dared to break through the vain terror of her presence and the idle guard of her walls. But the blow had been struck, though Alaric had died who struck it. From that day forth the Teutonic nations, whom the Romans classed together under the common name of barbarians, looked upon the lands of the western portion of the empire as given over to them in possession. From that day forth their chiefs arrived on the scene, not only to play the customary game of war, not merely to ravage and plunder, but to carry out the idea of Alaric, to become kings, to win kingdoms, to create nations. For a while the new condition of things seemed incredible to those accustomed to the old Roman central sway. There were fierce, even for a time successful, attempts to dispute and resist the change, the name and the authority of the Roman emperor had too fast a hold even on the Teutonic mind to be more than weakened. The Roman Empire lasted on more than fifty years in the West, and at Constantinople it had always to be reckoned with as a power which in strong hands was a formidable one. How strong was still the idea of the empire, and how obstinate the customary awe and respect for its authority is shown in two phenomena which are continually appearing in these times of confusion. One is the weight with which the imperial name, even when borne by so weak an emperor as Honorius, was seen to press upon local rebellions on the part of the subjects of the empire. In spite of his personal insignificance, in spite of the deep humiliations of his reign, in spite of the destruction of Stilicho, the Gothic conquest, the sack of Rome, no rival emperor, and there were seven in the course of five years, could maintain his title against the son of Theodosius. The other is that the barbarian chiefs who attacked the empire asked for and were proud of its honors and titles. Alaric, king of the Goths, insisted at the same time on being recognized as an officer in the Roman service, the master general of Illyricum. His successor, Athalf, while conquering in Gaul and Wallia, while conquering in Spain, professed to restore these provinces to the obedience of Honorius. But nevertheless, the great revolution which was to override all resisting forces and the deeply planted habits of ages had come. From Alaric and his victorious policy, two things date, which speedily altered the condition of the Latin world. One was the intrusion and interference of the barbarian power as a recognized political element in the Roman state. The other was the planting within its borders of new nations, each of them growing in its own way into an independent state, with its own interests and customs and policy, 
and coming less and less to acknowledge, even in the most shadowy form, the authority or even the existence of the empire in the West. End of section zero.